Two and a Half Admins, episode 75. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. <laughs> Here we are again. ASMR edition. But before we get started, your customary plug is cluster provisioning with Nomad and Pot. Yeah, uh, so if you want to know what FreeBSD has in more of the an alternative to Kubernetes, then check out Nomad, the cluster scheduler, and Pot, the kind of container manager. And by putting those together, you can do cluster provisioning and management, and it's quite interesting. All right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's start with some feedback then. James says, I enjoyed the timing of your email-focused episode. In the last week, Microsoft has decided to blocklist large swaths of Linode's IP space, just like they did with OVH last year. In the last year, Gmail decided that if you have a mail server on a residential ISP, then there is no negotiating, you are a spammer. I've been running several mail servers for about 10 years now, and the trend towards punishing IPs for what their neighbors are doing is getting worse and worse. If my mail server is sending spam, then it sure deserves to be blocked. But if one out of 255 IPs from a VPS provider or ISP is spamming, it just sucks to blocklist the whole subnet, let alone an entire ASN. The problem is the concentration of power. Microsoft doesn't care if your mail server tanks. How many of their customers will be affected? The customers you lose will probably just move to them. I see no end game here that doesn't involve it being impossible to host your own mail server in 10 years. Now, full disclosure, Linode have been a long-time sponsor of this show, so do keep that in mind when we discuss this. Well, first off, I would like to say that huzzah, huzzah, Microsoft finally lifted the block list on Linode, which they never publicly acknowledged in more than three weeks of keeping the entirety of Linode. We're not talking a single data center. We're not even talking a couple of data centers. The entirety of Linode they had blocked, which affected me. I've got a mail server on Linode. Jim couldn't email me. Yeah, I could not email Alan because Alan's company's email is on Office 365. In fact, while I was trying to communicate with Microsoft about the fact that they needed to lift that block list, they kept asking me to send email from, you know, the email address I was talking about. I'm like, I can't. You've got it on a block list and it bounces. Meanwhile, even when you went to their uh, their sender delisting you know, web application, it would tell you your IP was not blocklisted because wherever they actually implemented this gigantic block of Linode was above the level that their blocklist checker actually would check. So it would tell you, now nah, your IP is not blocklisted, you're good to go. Meanwhile, you send an email to anybody on Office 365 or to you know, Microsoft.com email addresses themselves and you get blocked. Finally, somebody in the press started actually talking about it after three weeks. I'm told that the Register covered it the day before I saw uh, UK News covered it. Um, the same day that UK News covered it, Microsoft finally lifted it. Again, with absolutely no public acknowledgement of what they had done. My biggest complaint, honestly, is probably not even the heavy-handed, awful thing that Microsoft did. It's that the entirety of the tech press just said nothing. One of the largest cloud providers in the world threw another one of the largest cloud providers in the world in a completely impenetrable, there is no recourse block list. They didn't even tell their own customer service people, look, you should just check out for this and warn these people, oh, hey, you're on Linode. We blocked Linode. We're not doing that. No, somebody just did it. And the tech press said nothing about it. And it just, it just went on that way for three weeks until finally somebody in the press said something. And then Microsoft was like, oh, well, this is bad PR. We should resolve this. Linode did try, right? But there was just nothing they could do. 
Oh yeah, Linode was was <laughs> in the words of the Linode support reps, they were working with Microsoft on that for the entire three weeks. But it seems pretty clear to me that what working with Microsoft really meant is, you know, over and over and over trying to get Microsoft to pay attention. And I have no idea if Microsoft asked them to do particular things or not, but I find it beyond suspect that they were, quote, working with them, unquote, for three weeks with absolutely no progress. But then two days after the register ran an article on it, it just quietly lifted with no fanfare. I really do not believe anything that Linode was doing is truly what caused that block list to lift. I believe it was becoming mentioned in the press is what did it. And that's why I'm so disappointed it took so long for the press to start reporting on it. It should not have taken that long. That was a big story. And what we've learned is that these really massive corporations, whether it be Microsoft or Google or Amazon or whoever, they do not budge the needle until the press starts reporting it widely and people start, you know, the mainstream starts noticing and talking about it. That's when they stop doing the bad thing. Yeah. And uh, to your point about, you know, when it's only one out of 255 IPs in a subnet that's being bad, that's an interesting one. I remember back when I was a noob on the internet, like 20 plus years ago, my very first post to a mailing list was about this exact topic. I think the subject line was something like bystander shot by spam filter. And it was like, so I have like a slash 27 or something like that, a subnet for a couple of my servers here. And it turns out somebody in the other end of the subnet spammed before and the ISP eventually kicked them out, but they weren't quick enough about it or whatever. And they got on this list and now I'm getting affected. And it's like, yeah, we block the entire ISP when that happens because otherwise they're not going to stop posting the spammer. They're just going to keep letting the spammers move around in their IP space until it's all gone. And so the way we force a VPS provider uh, or an ISP or whatever to never allow any spammers is by using a really wide block every time we block them for spam. That makes sense when you're talking about it, you know, one of these, quote, bulletproof hosting providers. But not every hosting provider is that way. And I can't speak with any authority to how much spam was being emitted from Linode, but I can tell you, from very long experience with being a Linode customer and with managing other people's Linode VMs, when you do have a compromise, like you're running a mail server and one of your users does something stupid, like you know, they set up IMAP without SSL and they went in the coffee shop and you know they they got Wi-Fi pineappled and now somebody is, you know, relaying volumes of spam using their credentials. When that happens, the odds are really good. You're going to get a nasty gram from Linode before you even detect it yourself. Linode is not a bulletproof provider. They do not tolerate shenanigans, you know, just no matter what, because, hey, we're getting our five bucks a month. Who cares? It's not that kind of host. If Microsoft was blocking, I don't know, SkySilk or whatever the crap, you know, in that fashion, like, okay, I get that. You got to get their attention that way. Maybe you just got to say nothing from any of those folks ever. Or like, you know, uh, what is it? NT technology, you know, Jim Watkins, the, the, the whole, you know, eight coon, whatever, like anything from that guy's subnets. Yeah, absolutely. Just throw that in the trash can and never look back. But Linode, come on, man. At my point, the struggle was not being a big name anybody had ever heard of and having to deal with this. But yeah, I, I, did, I can see both sides of it. And I don't know that there is a, a exactly right answer. One of the biggest sources of spam complaints that I get on mine is people installing like forum software that emails people on their birthday. And then people are like, that's spam. It's like, you registered for this forum. You confirmed the email thing. It's a happy birthday. Why are you reporting this as spam? 
I can't tell you how many times I have had everything up to, you know, C-levels at businesses subscribe to every mailing list in the world and get absolutely buried in like gigabytes of, you know, garbage per month that they specifically signed up for. Like they weren't tricked into it. They actually went to the subscribe to this list thing and then it gets to be more they can handle and they start complaining about all this spam. And like, then you look in their mail account, like I need to see this spam so I can figure out how to tune my filters. And you're like, dude, click on subscribe. You have zero spam in here. There is no spam. This is all stuff you ask for. If you don't want it anymore, unsubscribe from it. Yeah. Well, I guess part of the problem is that we taught Joe Public and Jane Public people to, oh, watch out for the unsubscribe link because in spam, the unsubscribe link is probably the subscribe link. Which, I mean, that is completely valid when it's something that comes in. You're like, I have no idea who these people are. I don't know where they got, you know, this address from. Yes, that is spam. And it is worth considering not clicking that unsubscribe, even though these days, usually there's, you know, complete garbage stuff that is obviously from completely shady freaking criminals that uh, don't click any link in that whatsoever. But you get a lot of stuff from, you know, what are obviously legitimate companies that have bought mailing lists. And is that a great practice? Do I approve of that practice? Do I wish that practice were not actually allowed? Sure. But at the end of the day, yes, you can click unsubscribe on something. Like, you know, something that's coming from MailChimp. Like, yeah, you can click that unsubscribe. Al wrote in to say, I'm just curious why Jim was so confident about not listening to anything Steve Gibson says related to security. I could go either way. I just wanted to hear his side of the story. Well, because Steve Gibson having said it doesn't confer any particular gravitas. I'm not saying that everything he's ever said is wrong. I'm saying he doesn't particularly care much about whether his advice is good or not. He tries really hard to get you all hyped up and get you into the cult of Steve Gibson. I stopped paying attention to him like 20 years ago when everything he wanted to hype was this incredibly crappy little application called Shields Up. And all Shields Up would do is it would reach out to a server on the web and then the server on the web would take note of what IP address had reached out to it. And then it would basically in-map scan, you know, that IP address and say, oh, you have all these ports open. Oh, my God. And he's encouraging everyone like, oh, my God, you have to run this. You have to do this. And if you do that and it says the results are clean, then you're safe. Meanwhile, freaking everybody he's talking to is behind a router with NAT on it. You know, if you had open ports, you damn well knew about it because you configured the router that way. You really had to go out of your way to, you know, configure a router to be in bridge mode and pass down, you know, the WAN IP address directly to a computer. Yes, it could be done. But again, if it was that way, you did it and you knew it. And Shields Up wasn't really telling you anything you didn't already know. A few too many things he said turned out to be the opposite is actually what reality says. (laughs) There's a couple of good websites out there that just refute basically most of his claims on stuff, although some of that's pretty old. Back when I was teaching, I recommended a couple of the episodes of his and Leo Laporte's podcast on just explaining in broad strokes to people that aren't familiar with it, how symmetric and asymmetric cryptography work basically and what the differences are. So that was useful, but he's not a security expert that writes a bunch of academic papers or that presents at DEF CON or that that has the gravitas to where I'm interested in his opinion on stuff. I would like the listeners to just imagine what Joe and Alan are seeing with me shaking my head gravely while Alan (laughs) speaks. 
again, the issue is not that nothing Steve Gibson says is correct. It's just that his having said it does not give anything any particular weight. I could boil it down like this. Please don't learn hardware from Linus Tech Tips. Please don't learn network security from Steve Gibson. Yeah. Steve Gibson's a podcaster. And so you shouldn't listen to what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Wait a minute. So, Alan, you had quite a stressful time on Sunday night. Yeah, I was uh, winding down at the end of the weekend there and just trying to watch some YouTube. And then the video just kind of stopped in the middle. And I was like, that's unusual. And then nothing would load. So I go check some stuff and, yep, there's no internet at my house suddenly. That's odd. And then I get a Telegram message in our little uh, operations group with myself and a couple other people that share some infrastructure at the data center and so on. And it's like, the link just went down between 151 Front Street, which is the biggest data center in Canada and where we're connected to most of our ISPs. And then we have a 10 gigabit DWDM wavelength to uh, a cheaper data center where we put our servers because the space in 151 is really expensive. And so by going a couple blocks away, we get much cheaper space and even slightly cheaper cooling and power and so on because it's not a building that was built in the 30s to be a telco building. And it's like, all right, why would the link go down? Like, did our optic go bad? We have a spare, but it's also just starting to blizzard out. We're expecting to get something between 30 and 60 centimeters of snow over the next 24 hours. That's one to two feet for Americans. Yeah, that's one to two feet of snow. It was it was a big snowstorm, very unusual. And I'm like, well, so it's not going to be fun to try to drive to the data center, which is like an hour away, to go and flip some optics around. And, you know, some of the people in the ops group are from Ottawa. And that's, so that's, that's like a six-hour drive in that kind of weather. And we're looking at it as like, that's weird. And it doesn't really seem to be coming back. So calling up the provider that provides the DWDM wavelength, which basically DWDM is a way to use different wavelengths to send multiple 10 gig signals over one fiber. So it allows you to get a whole bunch of different 10 gigabit links across a single fiber instead of having to use... I think it could do 120 or something like that wavelengths over one fiber instead of having to use 120 fibers. Anyway, we call the provider up and they're like, yeah, we, we don't know what's going on. We'll, we'll, we'll look into it for you. And then by a little bit later, they're like, yeah, we think there's a fiber cut or something. Then I'm scrambling around trying to move our API and website and control panel and stuff to the backup location. So, you know, log into the secondary DNS server. We have 10 DNS servers, by the way. So log into the second DNS server and promote it to be the master, having to use uh, NameD compile zone because it turns out the copy of the slave of the zone is in a binary format and I need it back in the text format so I can increase the serial number and trick all the other slaves into using the, the new zone file that says, hey, the API is now in Fremont instead of Toronto and get all that done. And then poking at things, trying to figure out what went wrong and what we're going to do about it. But eventually by about 3 a.m., I'm like, there's nothing I can do. Uh, they're admitting it's a fiber cut and they're, they're working on it. So I'm just going to go to bed. Uh, and then I got woke up at 8 a.m. saying it's finally back on. But that was not near the end of the story, as it turns out. So it turned out what happened was uh, just, I think, just before 11 p.m. local time, uh, there was an explosion in the power company's vault under the street in front of the data, the big data center, 151 Front Street. You know, I've seen a couple of pictures of the big fireball shooting out of it and uh, then all the fire trucks being on the scene and so on. And then some aftermath photos have finally come out and you just see this big conduit 
with a bunch of fibers sticking out and then just a melted mass of glass and plastic. And later get a log from the Toronto Internet Exchange. It's like we saw at the, like two minutes after the hour, one of our links went down and we thought that was odd. And then a couple of minutes later, another one went down. And a few seconds later, another one. And then five minutes later, another one. And they just fought like as six different links go down. And they're like, yeah, we figured out now that was the fire slowly melting each of our fibers. <laughs> <laughs> we can put a link to some photos of this in the show notes. It is uh, quite something. I just wish we could do scratch and sniff over the internet, get you that melting fiber smell. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Patrick says, I'm planning a file server build that will help speed things up for our creative team. My goal would be 160 terabytes usable space and 10 gigabit access to the server for video editing and large file transfer. We generate around 1.4 terabytes of data a week and it has to be sent over to be prepped for broadcast. We currently have a 160 terabyte cohesity cluster that would probably be good for small transactional reads and writes, but for moving large files, it falls down less than a gigabit transfer speeds. Thinking about a 45 drive machine, but want to make sure that I'm moving in the right direction. I currently have two TrueNAS Core Dell 450 machines for backup servers, but I don't need the performance out of them, just a place to store backups and to keep snapshots. I'm not sure what all the variables are that you would tune to get the best performance. Well, the biggest thing is going to be you want lots of VDEVs, not, you know, one big wide VDEV or even just a couple of wide VDEVs. If you're talking about a 45 drive server, you should certainly have enough bays to get the kind of performance that you want. Uh, the key variables are going to be, again, you want to keep the VDEVs narrow. Probably at that size, I would say six wide RAID Z2 would be your best bet. Mirrors are always going to be your most performant. But you're going to be talking about a lot of drives. And also, I feel like you're probably going to get a little persnickety about, you know, wanting to get a little bit better storage efficiency than 50%. So that leaves you with six wide RAID Z2. With four of those and 12 terabyte drives, you'll have enough space for what you want. The remaining major variable is you will need to set record size equals one meg because these are going to be large files and they're not going to be, uh, you know, edited in place with a lot of random access inside the file. So you want the larger records. I think that's probably going to be sufficient performance to saturate or near saturate that 10 gigabit link. If it's not, then it basically boils down. You're going to need to add more VDEVs. Now, the other thing that you need to look at, 
Uh, you said this is going to be a file server. If this is going to be NFS, that means you're going to be looking at a lot of sync rights. Ideally, you'd want a mirrored slog device. It's not specifically necessary anymore because you're only really talking about potentially losing a couple of seconds of rights if uh, the device fails while it's running. But what the slog is going to do is it's going to greatly accelerate your sync rights, which if you're doing NFS, it's going to be pretty much all the rights that you're doing. And you want it to be Intel Optane because nothing else right now has anything close to the low latency and incredibly high endurance of those drives. It does not need to be large. It just needs to be Optane. Alan, you think I missed anything there? Not especially. Like, obviously, mirrors are the fastest, but the disadvantage to that mirrors versus a RAID Z2, like Jim was recommending, is that you'd only have redundancy of one drive out of each VDEV failing before you're in trouble. So I think, especially since your data is quite important, that RAID Z2 uh, is the right answer and just many narrow VDEVs instead. So if you're looking at like five VDEVs of six disks each, that gives you 30 usable disks. And that leaves enough room in your 45 drive chassis to be able to add another two VDEVs down the road without running out of space and still leaving a couple extra slots to put stuff in. If you have even a modestly large number of files, putting in a two or three wide mirror of SSDs for metadata can make a big difference if you're having to walk directories of files a lot or something. But if you just have, you know, there's a hundred really large video files on it that you're working on or whatever, and then everything else is archived, it's much less of a big deal. Uh, the other thing I would say is, even if you have a 10 gigabit NIC, don't count on getting 10 gigabits per second out of it. Some of that is just the limits on the speed of what the clients can do and so on. There is some stuff you can do with uh, if you're using SMB to have Windows use multiple network connections, uh, like multiple separate TCP connections uh, to connect to one Samba share and spread the load out over more uh, CPUs on both the Samba server side and on the Windows side where it can be a limit and to actually take advantage of lags. Like normally with regular SMB configuration from uh, a FreeNAS or TrueNAS or whatever, or Linux, you're still going to be using one connection. And so it'll only ever use one link in a link aggregation. But with this new Samba feature, you can configure it to use multiple connections and get a bit more throughput that way. Yeah, it's a good point about 10 gigabit. Not, you can't always saturate 10 gig because frequently you do encounter some other kind of weird bottleneck before you ever get to the network. And it's not necessarily the storage. It is frequently CPU related when you've got a load that for whatever reason just does not spread across enough cores to move the data that quickly. It can happen quicker than you would think. But the the main point is making sure that your your storage will keep up with whatever you can actually get across the network I think, like I said, the six-wide RAID Z2 is probably going to be the best fit for you. I would not recommend mirrors at your scale. If you want to get higher performance, four-wide RAID Z2 is also a perfectly good option. That gets you the redundancy of Z2. However, you're still just looking at the storage efficiency, only 50% the same as mirrors. Normally, I think of four-wide RAID Z2 as kind of a you know bloody stupid Johnson sort of a configuration. But that's in small servers. You know, if you've only got eight bays, I, I almost never am going to recommend something like that. But when you're talking about 24 and up, like what you're looking at, four-wide RAID Z2 is not a terrible way to go. The last thing that you could think about doing that I'm really not recommending, but I will just put it out there anyway, one of the less widely appreciated configs that is still not bad is three-wide RAID Z1. For folks who are wanting to chase almost all of the performance of mirrors, but they want to get better storage efficiency, 
Normally, you don't recommend RAID Z1 for anything because just like RAID 5, it should pretty much be considered dead due to reasons of, you know, how long it takes to rebuild. Uh, the redundancy level is not sufficient. But in incredibly narrow, and I mean absolutely no wider than three, RAID Z1 VDEVs are not bad. But again, for you, you're big enough. I'm saying go RAID Z2, either four or six. The next step up after six would be 10. I don't recommend it for you specifically because you want to make sure that you can saturate as much of that throughput as you can get. But the other thing is that you really don't, when you're performance focused, you don't want to go anywhere between four and six or six and 10 because you want to make sure that the number of data disks in every, you know, stripe right that you do is going to divide evenly. There's a great article by Matt Aarons called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Raid Z. It explains why it's actually not that important to worry about, you know, doing exactly uh, the number of data drives being a power of two. And it's also a bit less of an issue when you're using the one meg record size because you're dividing a larger number by your number of drives. And so you don't end up with uh, running into the smallest sector size problems. But in general, if you're writing a lot of data, like a really big file, then you know, when you're writing that one meg, you're actually going to be writing a whole bunch of them back to back. And so if it's uneven, the next one's just going to start where you left off and you're going to write 100 megs a second to every drive anyway. I will point out as far as that Matt Aron's article goes, at a certain scale, I agree with Matt. You know, if you're just going to have like one RAID Z2 VDEV and like an eight bay server and it ends up, you know, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I can put seven drives in. That's like all I can really manage. Sure, don't worry about it. It'll be fine, whatever. But when you're building a big server, like Patrick is talking about building, and you're planning it properly ahead of time, don't leave that performance on the table. Don't leave that storage efficiency on the table. You're talking about writing huge files. You're talking about full stripe writes. And if those full stripe writes are completely efficient because they don't have to, you know, put padding in there to make it come out even when it doesn't divide evenly, you do get more performance. You do get less, you know, wasted storage out of it. So plan it properly. And if you go to that Matt Aaron's article, there's a link to a Google Doc spreadsheet that actually shows the efficiency of each one. You can literally just put in how many drives you want or whatever, and it'll be able to look up exactly what layout would be most efficient for what drives you have. The other question I kind of actually have here is, I'm guessing the performance that you're really after is on the files you're working on for this week. And then most of the other 160 gigabytes in your cluster is the stuff from last week that's less important. You say you generate about 1.4 terabytes per week. You could build a pool that was like four, six terabytes of all SSDs for what you're working on this week. And then separately have your 160 terabyte archive for the other stuff. And maybe have something that could give you that more performance there without or more performance than you could even possibly get out of hard drives. Although it, it depends how much data you need to have fast in any one week and how quickly stuff ages out and how you have to manually move it from your fast thing to your slow thing and so on. You know, Alan, I am one of the bigger proponents you'll ever meet of have two separate pools, you know, one solid state and one rust. And the really fast stuff goes on the solid state and the really big stuff goes on the rust. In this case, I, I'm really going to push back because what Patrick says he wants is large file throughput for, you know, just copy in huge chunks of data. He doesn't want random access. And in my experience, once you've got that many drives, if you've configured them properly, you actually can't outrun the rust with solid state because that's not where your problem is. You don't really have latency issues. Right. Or in particular, you know, the, the bottleneck is going to be the 
10 or 20 gigabits of network you have, not uh, the throughput of the hard drives. Because even though an SSD can do twice as much throughput as a hard drive, mostly it just means you need less of them. But hard drives, you can buy so many more of them for the price that, yeah, you can definitely meet your throughput targets uh, without SSDs. You know, actually, that brings us into something that you and I have both missed so far, Alan. Uh, the reality is that you're probably not going to bottleneck. We have enough drives here that you're not going to bottleneck on the the, uh, the combined throughput of the drives. And we're not talking about a latency-sensitive workload, so we're not particularly worried about that. However, what you absolutely are likely to bottleneck on with, you know, 20-plus drives is your SAS controller. So what you want to make sure of is you don't cheap out on that. You want to get a really good controller, you know, host bus adapter for these drives, you probably want to get a couple of host bus adapters for these drives. You don't want to do like a multiplexer where you're just trying to cram everything possible through a single controller because, you know, most of your host bus adapters are going to bottleneck prior to the 10 gig NIC bottlenecking. Yeah, uh, you might actually consider doing something like direct attach where you're having more separate adapters and, and piping the hard drives to them and not using the expander. Although you can end up needing quite a few controllers for 45 drives. Although I think we also talked about only needing about 38 terabyte drives to, to hit the target you're after. I wouldn't be looking at eight terabyte drives. I mean, with the size that he's looking at and where the bang for the buck is these days, I'd be looking at 12 terabyte drives. Probably. You're never going to need less space. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.